There are so many special people around Molyneux and so many stories to be told. And one of the folks that really has been the nexus and a true font of information, wisdom, and true care for the history of the club is Pat Quirk. And Pat, I've got to ask you here as we sit in the beautiful Wolves Museum that it's almost dreamlike to be in here and see all of the history unfold, but it's also sharing some of these stories. What brought you to this and why has it been so important to make sure that you help share these stories of the club? Well, I, um, I'm from the town. Um, I, uh, my father was from Ireland, but he used to come to the matches. And when I was a child, along with my brother, I used to come with him. And I now come to the games with my son. So there's a matter of, of heritage, really. Um, I've always been very proud of Wolverhampton Wanderers. They are the only team in town, and they're different to other clubs. Um, not always the most popular nationally, but uh, they're well worth following. So when I heard of the town's motto, out of darkness cometh light, it spoke to me in a variety of ways. But then... Through some of the tours and listening to some of the stories, I learned that the color scheme for the club is based on this motto in many ways. And I love knowing that that is what the synthesis is, but also how it carries forward. Kind of help us understand how the history unfolded from the time at St. Luke's and maybe red and white stripes to what's the true black and gold. Yes, Wolves, when they first started, they were a team of schoolboys and um, their first game was in 1877, which they lost 8-0. But they actually, I understand, wore blue and white hoops then. But they quickly grew out of those and went to the most popular colours of English football, which is red and white, which are red and white, uh, in a striped formation. And we played a game against Sunderland, a northeastern club, who also wear red and white stripes, in the uh, cup before the league started, before 1888. And the Wolves players, along with the Sunderland players, all had the same strip on, uh, what you call the uniforms. And the um, referee told the Wolves players to go back to the changing room and put their white travelling shirts on, the shirts they'd travelled in. So they did that, and that became the first away kit. And we traditionally have a white away kit. I think it might be stemming from those days. Anyway, when Wolves moved to the Molyneux, our present home, in 1889, the directors of the club told the players to go and figure out some colours that we could use for our team uh, kit that would be unique, that nobody else could copy. And at the time, Wolverhampton had become what we call a county borough, a town which can make its own rules about raising local taxes and markets and things like that. And they adopted a coat of arms, which we still have, and the motto, out of darkness cometh light. Now, that refers to the darkness of industrialisation, the darkness of ignorance when education grew. And um, one of the players suggested that we have the colours of the new motto, darkness and light. So, darkness is quite simple, you know, darkness is black, you wear black shorts, black trim. Light, they could have gone for a red or a pink, but they chose to go for a very popular Victorian colour, which was gold, and we're still playing gold and black to this day, and there's only one other team playing that, and that was uh, Newport County, which was basically started by people from Wolverhampton working in the Newport steel mills, and they took the colours with them. When I was 
first like exploring the history of the club, I, I found these Pathé News reels that uh, we've added some of the audio actually to Wolves Radio, which streams 24-7 in the Wolves app and online at wolves.co.uk. But in this Wolves Radio app, sometimes you will hear these interstitials, I guess is the best way to put it, going back to the match versus Hanved and Billy Wright bringing home the FA Cup with the Wolves and how exciting all that was with the parade and hearing him in front of what was truly, it was, I love walking through the downtown area and seeing like, oh, that's, you know, exactly where they were when the bus was coming through. And it's really a special thing to kind of look back and then in the audio format that we're talking about here, listen to, but there was this time period where this was the team that the nation was really focused on. And some of this projects to this day as for not just pride within folks that are supporters of the club, but also this deeper understanding by older football fans that like, no, this is, this is a team of legacy. It's a lot to live up to, really. We did have a period after the Second World War, which they call the Golden 50s, when we, um, we'd won the league three times and we won the FA Cup twice. Those were our major competitions. Um, and we were better than uh, pretty much every other team in the country. So much so that uh, the directors of the time installed floodlights, even though they weren't, for seven years, they weren't allowed to use them for domestic competition. So we played a lot of friendlies against European clubs. And that was the start of the European Cup. So I was on the... Um, at the sort of threshold of that, really. We had a lot of international players. We had the captain of England. Um, well, the previous captain of England was our manager and the captain of England at the time, Billy Wright, a very iconic player for us, who uh, captained the, the England team 90 times. And he was the first player to get over 100 appearances for his country, 100 caps. He was our captain and he only ever played for the Wolves. So these, these are figures of the time. Now, there's a downside to this because it was very hard for subsequent teams and generations to live up to that without the sort of investment that um, we were able to put in after the war. And other teams who had more investment became more popular and more successful. And we did sort of go into the back channels a little bit. Well, you talked about the other captain, Stan Cullis, as I understood from kind of learning, researching some of this to understand really the deeper part of the history and how his influence on the club was born from his time as a player. The manager then was, if you do what we expect and what I say, and you join this program and you do this the way that we need to, one day you will be manager. And I think anybody who has that kind of opportunity in life to know that there's a path or a trajectory to get to where they hope to get in their fuller career or something like this, to have that opportunity to hear that story, to think of that there's a progression and a pathway to such a thing, that had to make him then an amazing manager because it was ordained in many ways. Yes, I think that's right. But uh, of course, he managed the way he'd been managed. And in the 1930s, Wolves manager at the time was a man called Franklin Buckley, who'd been a soldier in the First World War and was a very hard man. And um, it was very much a sort of militaristic uh, setup, most football clubs were. And Cullis, um, he, he learned his trade as a manager from Buckley. Um, Buckley treated his, his players like soldiers. 
almost, uh, and he expected none of them to marry before they'd retired. Um, he expected them to um, basically follow his instructions on the way they lived during the week. They couldn't go out. They couldn't go out to meet a girl, anything like that. Um, and some, he was called the, uh, the Iron Major, and in return, Buck, um, Cullis was called the Iron Manager because he was very strict. But he was a fair man and a decent man. They both were, in all honesty. I don't know whether they would be able to exist today because the world's a different place um, and players have got far more rights than they had then. But it, it worked. It worked for us. We had a, a good scouting system. We drew players from all over the country, really, and from foreign places like South Africa, which was really quite unusual. We're with Pat Quirk and... It would be really nice to step out now into the museum and walk with you and find a couple of spots where we can almost do like an audio tour like you would in a museum where you could put on the headset and that sort of thing and hear some stories about a couple of specific items. We'll choose just three of them. We'll go for the hat trick and then we'll leave people wanting to come to this museum to see it in person themselves. Let's go take a tour. All right, so Pat, we've had such a great time meeting so many people around the club who are so passionate. Yesterday uh, at the match versus Everton and Liverpool, I remarked when I was talking with Gemma Frith that uh, there's two Jacks. One's a photographer, one works with Max in the media side of things, helping coordinate players and appearances with the media and this sort of thing to make everything run smoothly. But there's two Jacks now, but in the beginning, there were two jacks. Well, there were actually three, but uh, the two <laughs> I'm sorry to mention about. Um, the, the, the club was started by two, basically, pupil teachers at a school, um, and they used to truant from school because they were overworked, and they um, wanted to start a football team. And um, they tried to. Jo- there was only one team in the area. They tried to join it, and they couldn't because the, the team were men and they were boys and they weren't interested in taking these lads on. So they moaned about the fact that they couldn't get this team and one of the dads was listening to them and he said, why don't you start your own team? And they thought that was a great idea and they put a notice on the church door where they worked, next to the school where they worked, St Luke's School, and we've got that notice here. So, um, see, that's, that's from 1876. Um, and it's, and that, that's not a replica, that no, is the notice. The actual notice, it was in somebody's garage for us getting on for half a century but um, it just it's only a, it's a straightforward uh, flyer really and it just say any gentleman interested in the game is invited to attend and I do like to think we only employ gentlemen <laughs> I think we probably don't <laughs> but anyway the um, uh, all the boys who turned up to start this football club were all members of the church choir and so they dropped the name Goldthorne which is what they were going to call themselves the Goldthorne team and they called themselves after the church where the choir were St Luke's so we became the St Luke's team. And they played at St Luke's for 12 years. It was only when they moved to a cricket ground, which was um, owned by a team called the Wondrous Cricket Club, that they became the Wondrous Football Club. That's how they got the name Wondrous, and they've added ever since. We have a lot of these Victorian things which um, indicate people walked about a lot, such as Wondrous Rovers, <laughs> Strollers, all this kind of thing. Well, Wolverhampton, Wondrous. It sort of does roll off the tongue. It's pretty good, really. And this here is the very first trophy that they won in 1884. So this is the, the famous Reeking Cup. Um, and the original boys in that uh, church choir, they actually 
um, went into a competition and they won this piece, which is beautiful. It's the only football trophy I know with angels on it. <laughs> and it's engraved here as a prize for Wolverhampton. Yes, it, it's, the reason it's so tall is that we still play for it, so it's used for the Charity Cup now. And so, although it's, it was Wolves' original trophy, they've put it up for um, teams on a Sunday, like amateur teams to play for. We've got a photograph of the team that's won it here. Um, and there they are with it. And there's John Brodie, and there's John Bainton. So those are the two boys. And the, uh, the other Jack I mentioned was the, um, was the first employer of the club, a friend of theirs called John or Jack Adambrook. Um, he was the secretary, he was the first manager, and he was here for 34 years. So interesting fellow, really. If this was in colour, that would be in red and white stripes that we talked about. I was about to ask you that, because that does come from that time period, but this is neat to see the sepia tone, because yes. it does bring us back to that time, but also is evocative of yeah. the current colour scheme. Yeah, so that's an important piece to actually take it back to the, the actual original day that the, the team formed. I think it's great. This is a, a shirt from the 1908 Cup final when we, um, we played Newcastle United. And uh, at the time, Wolves were in the... There were two divisions. Wolves were halfway down the second division, not doing very well. And they employed, they employed anybody they could because they were pretty much bankrupt. And this young man, whose name was Kenneth Hunt, he was um, at Oxford University training to be a priest, to be an Anglican priest. And he would come and play for the Wolves at weekends for free. And, of course, I sort of ripped his arm off for that. But anyway, um, he, uh, he was what we'd call a midfield player now. And uh, Newcastle, at the time, were the league champions. They were a top team. And Wolves were halfway down the second division, not very good at all. And nobody gave Wolves a chance in the final. They got there by winning games 1-0. Um, Newcastle was so sure that they were going to win the cup, they wanted their photograph taken with the trophy before the match to save time. Anyway, <laughs> wow. well, you know, well, pride comes before. Um, anyway, the, uh, the game started and Kenneth Hunt, this, uh, this young lad, he, he played for us off and on 12 years and he only ever scored twice. But he scored on that day. So he scored in the cup final, kicked the ball 35 yards, it went over the Newcastle keeper's head. And then within minutes, a second player, a winger called Harrison, uh, he scored, and that's his shirt. He wasn't a big man, but the legend was that his wife gave birth to triplets that morning and it didn't put him off his game. I don't think it's true, but that's what people thought. Um, and uh, anyway, he scored, so Wolves are two up. The second half starts, Newcastle get a goal back, but then Wolves wrap it up with uh, a goal from their captain, a fellow called Headley. So Wolves win the cup 3-1 against all the odds. And um, because it's 1908 and because the Olympic Games should have been held in Italy that year, Mount Vesuvius erupts and it affects some of the competition. So the Olympic Committee decided that they're going to move the whole competition somewhere safer. And the only place that could take it was the um, White City in London, which is a, a dog racing track. And so they moved there and Kenneth Hunt, because he's an amateur, and they were very strict on the rules then, he plays in the Great Britain team and they win the competition. So that year that he won the FA Cup, he also wins an Olympic gold medal and we've got both of them there. Um, which is a, a fantastic thing for a man who never earned a penny playing football. 
Uh, he was always an amateur. Currently, we have um, we we've got a, a player who has won the Olympic gold medal in Raúl Jiménez in the 2012 Olympics, but he, he didn't win the uh, hasn't won the FA Cup yet. We hope that will be next year. <laughs> Matches under the floodlights and this being the first venue for this such thing. But then there's some other unique history with this, and it's really cool to see one of the original floodlights here in the display. But to make the most out of that experience, you're telling me that some of the shirts that the players were wearing were engineered or created to be more visible under the floodlights to give it a little pop. That's very innovative for its time. This was Kulish's idea that they... Um he had a local seamstress make these shirts of, uh, I think it's parachute material, and they reflect. So they would reflect the lights from the floodlights and make it easier for players to be seen at night in games. But they're very unpopular because they don't breathe. They're just solid. And they're also gathered at the waist a bit like a, a woman's blouse. Um, the players didn't like them at all. But uh, they all disappeared, bar two. We know where one is, and this is the other one. You know, it's interesting here, and I think back to baseball lore in the U.S. and Major League Baseball. There was a team owner for the uh, athletics organization, and he was very inventive with ideas for doing very unique things, and one of which was an orange baseball so that in a similar kind of situation, it, it could be seen in a different kind of way. And, and it, it almost threw people too much. But to see this shirt here in person, you, you would not equate this shirt with a, a wolf's uniform of any typical sense. But that history, that is fantastic to see in this case with, as you mentioned, a tour of South Africa. And as you had said earlier about uh, South African players being part of the club very early, just to see it all unfold here in this case that is evocative of a time period in the 50s. That's really special stuff. Yes, that's right. And uh, of course, they, these are the first games televised as well. Um, and this again might add to the appeal of Wolverhampton Wonders uh, nationally and internationally because people could see them in their homes. Um, they didn't actually have to come down to the games. But, uh, yeah, a lot of people talk about the, uh, the home veg shirts, and this is one of them. Now, we've taken folks from the 1880s up to the 50s with this tour, but you wind around for another easily two hours of spending time here in the museum and really looking at the displays and all of the very nice written formats for how things are explained. And you'll see more recent history. You'll see the 60s, 70s, and 80s all unfold. And it's just a special place that it's really nice that this exists. And it's, it's not at all the kind of thing where it's about, oh, here's some passive history and a couple of write-ups and here's you know, a gift shop. This is truly a museum. Yes, I didn't want it ever to be uh, just... Um uh, a display of success because Wolves history hasn't been that. It's been undulating. There's been great periods of, of achievement, but also great periods of despond as well. And uh, it's got to reflect that because uh, that's the truth and that's the way it should be. So it, it, uh, people appreciate that, I think, and they do remember bad times as well as good. And, of course, when the good times come, it's even better because you can, you can remember how bad it was and then appreciate how good it is and how good it might be. 
Pat, this has been amazing. You're incredible. Thank you so, so much for taking us on the tour. My pleasure. I hope your visitors manage to get to Wolverhampton and uh, we'll be glad to show them around. Thank you. 